0: Hosea 4, 1 through 6, 3, as we mentioned last week, we're going to be reading through some bigger portions of scripture as we preach through the minor prophets over these next seven months, so hang in there, this is a big chunk of text. Let's pay attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom wine and new wine which take away the understanding my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their god to play the whore they sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak poplar and terebinth because their shade is good therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not, as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have born alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Abon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is true. The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim. And like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me come let us return to the lord for he has torn us that he may heal us he has struck us down and he will bind us up after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him let us know let us press on to know the lord his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we need your help. We continue to cry out to you as we continue here in Hosea with some difficult texts, with some challenging language with some imagery that is shocking god we need you to work by your word and your spirit to enliven our hearts god to cause us to hear and to see what you would have for us so father we ask that you would speak through your word this morning to your people that you would be honored and glorified in jesus name amen you may be seated As we saw last week, Hosea chapters one through three painted a vivid and alarming picture of the reality of spiritual adultery. Hosea's relationship with Gomer and the naming of their children signified Israel's whoredom. We also sought to remind ourselves that we are not off the hook as God's people today, both individually and corporately. There are going to be a lot of reminders of that reality over the next seven months as we go through the Minor Prophets, that these things apply to us still today. But we also saw last week the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God, how he in his mercy pursues his people, how he buys us back and how he, how he gives us great promises of future hope. Hosea 4.1 to the end of the book is an explanation and an outworking of the parable In chapters 1 through 3 of God's prophet marrying an unfaithful woman. Today we're going to unpack 4.1 to 6.3, which we just read. But before I get into that, I want us to consider some historical context so that we can think through the implications of this text for us today. There are four historical settings that I want us to think about here today. The first is Hosea's day. That's the most obvious one as we walk through this text. It's what the the focus of our text obviously is, and we want to look at that and be faithful to that. Then we want to fast forward, and we want to think about Jesus' day. We want to think about how Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, was a partial fulfillment of this judgment and restoration in the prophets. I say partial fulfillment, meaning there's more to come, right? Not that Jesus only did a little bit, but he, he partially fulfilled these things that were spoken of. There's, there's more to come, these, these last days things that we've seen already the third context is europe at the time of the protestant reformation reformation sunday we're going to focus on that a little bit and then the fourth setting the fourth historical setting is our day the here and now from now until jesus returns so those are the four historical settings i want us to consider the title of the message this morning is pursuing true reform Uh, this is something that was needed in all four of these historical settings True reform has always been needed. The pursuit of true reform is really the main point of our text here in Hosea 4, 1 to 6, 3. As we look at Israel's false worship and the things that God is is doing to call them back to himself, they were in need of true reform. In Jesus' day, there were similar issues of misplaced trust, trust and worship that was more externally focused than internally focused. Jesus was calling his people back to him to worship him rightly, to worship him in spirit and in truth and not just be externally focused. In 16th century Europe, the issues that were faced in Hosea's day and Jesus day, those things didn't just magically disappear after Jesus came and lived and died and ascended into heaven and sent his Holy spirit to empower his apostles to go out and preach the gospel to the nations. Those things Those struggles didn't just disappear because sin was still present and is still present. And fallen humans would still try to grasp for power and to look for political alliances and deliverance. Those things were happening at the time of the Reformation. And obviously, the Church of Jesus Christ today is still in need of true reform. We don't just look back and say, oh yeah, 500 years ago this stuff happened, great, and we're good today. No, we're not, right? We still are in need of true reform. Reform. I emailed a couple articles out this week that were kind of explanations of a writing of John Calvin that he wrote in 1544 called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And you can find that whole writing. Corey uh, sent me a copy of it. I actually have a copy of of it on my computer. It's it's quite long. I haven't read it yet. I I will someday. But Calvin's whole work, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, uh, it's, it's worth looking at, obviously, but if you want to just read those summaries, you'll get a good overview. Uh, those summaries that I sent out talk about four issues that, were, that Calvin addressed in that writing. The first one was worship. The second one was justification. The third were, were the sacraments. And the fourth was church government. And Calvin argued two things, kind of two main things throughout this writing. He said, we need to know how to worship God rightly. That's the first and most important thing. And then, well, not more important. But we need to, the second thing is that we need to know how to be saved. So we need to know how to worship God rightly, and we need to know how to be saved. Those are the two main things. So what was going on at the time of the Reformation that required this, these things to be written and these challenges uh, to be brought to the church? I sent a third article to you after I sent the first two, uh, which, which was called The Reformation of Worship by a guy named Aaron Denlinger. Denlinger. And these were all on Ligonier Ministries' website. And he says, in the pre-Reformation church, worship was broadly conceived as a meeting between God and his people. It was, however, a meeting where God had very little to say, at least in words the people could understand. The liturgy of worship included selections from the Latin Bible, but exposition of scripture, that is, preaching, was not considered essential to worship and very rarely occurred on occasions where God's people were gathered in their parish church. The people were not then receiving any intelligible word from, the, from God in their meetings, not by his fault or theirs, but that of their leaders. He then goes on to describe how people viewed worship as them giving something to God in the sacrifice of the Eucharist rather than receiving from God. Also, that the emphasis ought to be on God, he was saying that the emphasis should be on God presiding over the worship service rather than the priest being the one who is presiding over the service. He goes on, he writes this The reformers acknowledged the importance of letting or rather hearing God speak in worship in words the people could understand. The faith by which sinners are justified leans upon God's promise of forgiveness in Christ. Thus, the reformers realized that central to worship must be God's proclamation through the mouthpiece of his ministers, of his promise, the gospel, to his people. Brothers and sisters, we gather here today on this 505th anniversary of the Reformation, not to go through a bunch of rituals as if we have something to offer to a holy God. No, we come to receive from him as he speaks to us through his word the great need of our day is not more inspiring worship music or better church programs or bigger buildings our greatest need is to hear god speak to us in worship to have ears to hear and to have hearts to respond to what he has said to us in his word that's what hosea 4 1 to 6 3 is all about Chapters four and five both begin with clear commands to God's people and to the leaders of his people to hear and to pay attention. So let's get into it, and may the Lord give us ears to hear. Hosea 4:1 Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. This opening line here: Hear the word of the Lord. This is an often repeated phrase in the Old Testament. We see it 34 times. Every time this phrase appears, it it's, comes from the mouth of a prophet. 29 times we see this out of the 34 in the writing prophets. Hear the word of the Lord. And it's mostly in situations where the people really needed to listen up, where God needed to get their attention about something. So I can say this to us today. Hear the word of the Lord, right? Not what I have to say. What God has to say to us through his word. And in this case, Hosea communicates to the children of Israel that the Lord has a controversy against them. This word controversy can be translated as charge or case or indictment. Here, Hosea is the mouthpiece of the Lord bringing these charges against his people. We see in verse 1 through 14, there are two lists of sins followed by the consequences of those sins. And remember, as we've said, the prophets are covenant enforcers. They are sent by God to remind the people of their unfaithfulness in keeping keeping God's covenant and in keeping his law. Look at the second half of verse 4. It contains a list of omissions that lead to a bunch of commissions. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. We had the question in the children's catechism several weeks ago. Asking what is sin? Shorter catechism answer is that sin is any want of conformity or lack of conformity unto meaning we don't do what God tells us to do, right? There, we see it in verse one. There's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. They're not doing the things they ought to do. So it's any lack of conformity unto or and transgression of the law of God. So it's not doing what God tells us to do and it's doing what he tells us not to do. We talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. We see both of those things emphasized here. They're not doing these things and then they're doing certain things things those things listed here in verse two swear um swearing lying murder stealing committing adultery this is the third ninth sixth eighth and seventh commandments. this is the clearest place we see in the old testament where outside of the list of the ten commandments where they the ten commandments are some of the ten commandments are listed together and it's stated very clearly that the people have broken those they have not done those things And the the list at the end of uh, verse 1, that there is no faithfulness or steadfast love or knowledge of God. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God said that he would betroth his people to himself in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. He would betroth them to him in faithfulness. God said he would do these things because God is faithful. God is full of steadfast love. But the people were not reciprocating. They were doing all of these opposite things. And we see the consequences then listed in verses 3 through 11. We're not going to go through all of this, but just in verse 3 there, the land mourns, the people languish, the beasts, the birds, the fish, they're, they're taken away. This is a picture of, of total and utter ruin. We see judgment against priests and prophets. The oft-quoted verse in the beginning of verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This word here for knowledge is not just information doesn't say the people are destroyed because they didn't read enough books right they didn't memorize enough information this word for knowledge is the word that talks about intimacy with god you're going to see this in chapter 5 verse 4 that the spirit of whoredom is within them and they do not know the lord and in 6 3 when hosea urges them let us know let us press on to know the lord this word for know here is the same word that is used in genesis 4 1 when it says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. It's no accident that in some of the most vivid imagery in all of the Old Testament here with Hosea and Gomer, that we see Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord and that there is this call to intimately know the Lord as a husband and wife know each other. Now far from being some inappropriate sexualizing of our spiritual reality, the most intimate human experience and language is used to show that our knowledge of and our relationship with God is to be the most intimate relationship that we have. Therefore, when we commit sins like those listed in verses 12 and 13, the Lord is rightfully jealous and grieved. Look at what is described here. It says, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. Sort of been practices that were used in Baal worship. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. There were issues going on where the northern kingdom was no longer having priests who were from the Levitical line of priests they set up their own priests they were offering unlawful sacrifices to god they were doing all of these things that the pagans did and for that god was bringing judgment upon them now verse 14 here is kind of interesting it's a bit of an interpretive challenge it says i will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Some commentators think that this is maybe spoken sarcastically here. Uh, Some think that the men are punished and not the women. But the emphasis is probably on that last line, that a people without understanding shall come to ruin, meaning that the people are bringing their own destruction upon themselves. That's how the warning continues in verses 15 through 19. Look at verse 15, though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. In other words, God is saying, don't get your brothers and sisters caught up in your sinning. Israel, don't let Judah fall. And for us, this is a reminder that these sin patterns, these, breakings, these breaking of God's commandments and these running after idols, that they all have serious consequences, not just for ourselves, but for others. You do you is not a sustainable life philosophy philosophy because you is always wrapped up with we. Whatever someone wants to do individually and they think that it doesn't have consequences, we all know that it does, right? We, we've all grown up in families and we've seen the consequences of one person's actions to ours, whether it's parents to children or vice versa, whether it's siblings with each other. You can't live by yourself and do what you want to do and think that it doesn't have consequences for others. That's something that's especially important for us as Christians. We are not autonomous beings whose individual choices only affect us. Our personal holiness and corporate holiness are very closely tied together. This was clearly an issue at the time of the Reformation, and it remains an issue in the church today. And while the burden is certainly upon all of us, there is a unique burden on those whom God has called to lead and shepherd his people. That's why chapter 5, verse 1 is such a terrifying verse to me. He says, hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. Notice this rapid fire these commands here, these three rapid-fire commands. Hear, pay attention, give ear. The Lord specifically addresses the leaders in Israel. We talked about the priests and the house of the king. Though obviously the people are not off the hook. Pay attention, O house of Israel. In verses 3 to 4, we come back to the idea of knowing God. Notice how these verses are bookended. God says, I know Ephraim in the beginning of verse three. End of verse four, they do not know the Lord. Now this title Ephraim here is used, it's going to be used throughout Hosea. It's just another, it's a synonym for Israel. It's just another name for Israel. Ephraim was the, uh, the kind of the center of, uh, just north of, of, Ju- of Judah, the area of Judah in the Southern kingdom. It's kind of the Southern Uh, Part of the northern kingdom, kind of like the belt, the belt region of of all of Israel. And so, and a lot of these places that are named throughout these chapters are are places that are in Ephraim there. So uh, Ephraim here is representative of Israel. Verses six to seven then are again consequences of Israel's sins. It says with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn for, from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Notice the reference there to Hosea and Gomer's children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. This is interesting here in verse 6. It says that they will seek the Lord, but they will not find him. This is opposite of the refrain that is common throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.9, Jeremiah 29.13. Jesus in Matthew 7, seek and you will find. This is saying they will be seeking, but because of their sin, they will not find God. And what does it mean here that God has withdrawn from them? And does God also withdraw from us today at times because of our sin and our pride? The answer might come as a little bit of a shock to you. I've quoted uh, several times in the past from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5 section five it's my favorite section of my favorite chapter chapter is called of providence i love this set, this section because though it sounds harsh and upon first hearing can be hard to wrestle with it conveys god's deep and intimate care of us it says the most wise righteous and gracious god doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations And the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. I believe that this is also what the Apostle Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 7 through 10 when he said, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, But it is truly one of the keys to growing in grace, not only intellectually acknowledging, but also believing in our hearts that because God loves us so much as his children that he allows us to face weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities so that we will grow in dependence upon him and be more watchful against sin. God is not a helicopter parent. He will not shelter us from all harm and not allow us to face any adversity in our lives. But he will allow us to grow and to mature and to learn from our mistakes. And he does it graciously and mercifully and perfectly, unlike human parents, despite their best intentions. So what are you going through in your life right now where you feel like God isn't present or isn't concerned with how hard it is? What weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, or calamities are currently on your plate? And what are you doing about it? Are you ignoring God? Are you complaining about your situation? We're going to see in Hosea 6, 1-3 what our response should be. But before we get there, let's look at the rest of this chapter. There is a giant warning here that contains a bit of a shift in imagery. Again, 4-1 and 5-1 contain the warnings to hear. Could be a picture here of someone in a town square getting the attention of, of people in the crowd. It's an important warning, but it's not exactly a, a life or death warning. But the shift in chapter 5 verse 8 is pretty ominous it says blow the horn in gibeah the trumpet in ramah sound the alarm in beth avon hear this horn these horns and trumpets we have the picture of this being sounded from a city wall the invading army is closing in sound the alarm get ready people But instead of an invading army coming for them, it is the Lord who is coming for them. Verses 12 through 14 introduce some similes uh, that actually occur very frequently throughout Hosea. We're going to be seeing this a lot uh, over these next several chapters. The Lord is like something. Okay, Here in verse 12, the Lord says, but I am like a moth to Ephraim. And like dry rot to the house of Judah. This imagery here of something slowly eating away at all the false hopes that the people have put their hope in. Finally, God's people realized how sick they were and how badly they were wounded. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound so they realized that they were sick they recognized their wound but they went to Assyria they went to the king of Assyria seeking aid this is something that both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom did but what does God say to them he is not able to cure you or heal your wound Then the Lord here confronts us with a much more shocking simile. Verse 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no no one shall rescue. One commentator said, no longer will the kingdoms be faced with the slow decline of moths and decay. Instead, they will be confronted with the swift ferocity of sudden attack. The Lord will act as a lion, tearing and carrying off, and no one shall rescue. Do you see the irony here? Israel went to the king of Assyria to be healed. They put their hope in someone other than the Lord. And now the Lord is going to use Assyria to come and to carry Israel away. The very one they hoped would rescue them will be the one to bring their kingdom to an end. And it is ultimately the Lord's doing. The Lord is the lion who is carrying them away. He's using Assyria, but God is the one who is doing it. This played out here in Israel with the exile of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722 B.C. Then the southern kingdom of Judah would be carried off to Babylon in 586 B.C. So that's what—that's the context there. In Jesus' day, the land was occupied by the Romans and the people were looking for a political Messiah. They were putting their hopes in something other than the Lord for deliverance. In the early days of the Reformation, Martin Luther employed this captivity language in a writing he called the Babylonian captivity of the church. Okay, he's being very provocative here. He's pointing back to... Judah being taken off into Babylon, he's saying the church in his day is captive just like Judah was captive to Babylon. He argued this and he pointed out that the Pope and the Roman sacramental theology were the thing holding God's people captive. The Babylonian captivity of the church is one of the writings that Luther was asked to recant when he was summoned, summoned to the Diet of Worms not the diet of worms okay he wasn't eating worms it's spelled w-o-r-m-s but i know we got some german background folks in here and you guys will appreciate the the w in german it has a v sound okay so luther was at the diet of worms not worms he also nailed his 95 thesis to the castle or the church door in wittenberg not wittenberg okay rant over (laughs) but yes so diet of worms in 1521 where Luther stood and defended himself with these famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. In other words, there is no hope of rescue apart from the Lord. Martin Luther was willing to lose his head in order to defy the church in Rome, which was holding God's people captive. It is no different in some ways from our day. While we do not face a massive church and state coalition that is corrupting the worship of god there is much captivity to false teachings and destructive heresies there are dangers without and dangers within without the world is full of false promises false hopes things that will supposedly make us happy or fix what is wrong in the world whether it's political solutions which both sides are trying to offer, right? Both sides want to give political solutions to fix things in the world or spiritual trends that will fix our anxiety or our depression. And there are dangers within. Just turn on most Christian TV stations. From the health and wealth and prosperity gospel to motivational speakers masquerading as mouthpieces of the Lord to those abusing positions of power and authority to build their own empires. As we think about the need for reform, we need to not just point the finger outward. We also need to point the finger inward to ourselves individually and to us as a church. We need to humble ourselves here locally as Livingstone Church. We need to seek to walk with the Lord and and follow him and be reformed by his word regionally because because we're good presbyterians right as a presbytery our presbytery needs to seek this same reformation we don't just meet four times a year and go through the motions because that's what we do right nationally our general assembly as a denomination we need to continually seek to be reformed by god's word we are reformed we are protestant We need to remember our roots and we need to seek to humbly walk according to the examples of those who have gone before us. We must do today what God was calling his people Israel to do in Hosea's day, as we see in verse 15 here of chapter 5. God says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. This here, acknowledging our guilt, seeking God's face, earnestly seeking him, this can be summarized in the first of four R's that we see here in 5.15 through 6.3. The first R is repentance. We need to acknowledge our guilt. We need to turn from it. We need to seek God. We need to repent. And verse 15 here serves as a transition between the Imagery of the Lord as a lion in verse 14, and the call to the people at the beginning of chapter 6. Chapter 6 here here is Hosea speaking on behalf of the Lord to the people of Israel and to all believers since, really, uh, this this is to all of us who are tempted to look for rescue in other places. Let's look at 6, 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. We see here that in the second line there of verse one, that it is the Lord who has torn us. It is the Lord who will heal us. The world will not heal our wounds. The people were running to Assyria to have their wounds healed. And God says, the king of Assyria can't do it, right? I'm the only one who can do it. It is the Lord, actually, we see here. It's the Lord who has torn us so that he may heal us. God has struck us that he may bind us up. Remember Westminster Confession 5 5 and Paul's thorn. God is the one who withdraws for a season, God is the one who gives that thorn in the flesh so that we might seek him. Question for us is do we believe this? Do we trust him with this in our lives? Are we looking to point the blame to others who have hurt us, not realizing that none of those wounds happen apart from the sovereign will of God? This is a hard truth. I'm not trying to minimize sin or the complicity of other people. But nothing that happens to us in our lives happens by accident. And this should really inform our ability to forgive others and to see our own capacity for carrying out sinful deeds toward others but in the midst of the fallen world in which we live where we sin and are sinned against there is always hope verse 2 after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him now the original audience of Hosea would probably not have understood being raised on the third day in terms of bodily resurrection. But when Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen four in his summary of the gospel that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, he was almost certainly referencing Hosea 6, 2. Then verse three is this majestic close to this section. Let us know, let us press on to know The Lord, again, this knowing here is this intimate knowledge of the Lord that we are called to. Pressing on to know is pursuing the Lord. Again, it's not just gathering information. It's not reading some books or memorizing some timelines and information. It's not having all our theological I's dotted and our T's crossed, though we care about good theology, right? But it's knowing him. Because his going out and his coming are certain. He will come to us. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is the promise that we need. He will come. Will we be ready? Will we be those whose lives have been so genuinely reformed by the word of God And the spirit of God that it is evident to the world around us that we are not living for what this world can give us, but for a hope that is beyond the grave. That hope is depicted in a marriage. A marriage with a faithful husband who has been relentless to pursue and purify his bride, even though she does not always faithfully seek and follow him. I'm not talking about Hosea and Gomer. Obviously, that points us to a greater reality. Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the closing of all of history. John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of, a mighty, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is a picture of a fully reformed bride, of a bride who has made herself ready, of a bride who has walked through hardships in this world. And who has been cleansed and purified and made ready by a holy God, by the bridegroom. John closes then at the end of chapter 21, some of the very last words in all of scripture. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life. Without price, he closes. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are longing for. This is why we endure the hardships of this life. This is why we walk with Jesus when the world around us mocks us and says, What are you doing? Come follow us, right? It's easier. Just come do whatever you want. We say, no, God has called us. God has called us to to turn from our sins and repentance. He has promised that he will revive us. He has promised that he will restore us and raise us up when we return to him. That is what we are called to do. And that is what we are longing for. Our bridegroom who will come. And who who will bring us to himself and purify us and reform us fully in that day. Let us pray. God, as we've seen here this morning, we are confronted in the same way that Hosea confronted your people Israel. We are confronted with the reminder to hear your word, to not run to other places for healing. God, to turn from our sin and repentance, to return to you, to be revived and raised by you. Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life and you were raised on the third day that we might live that we might hope in you, that we might run to you alone for healing. Give us ears to hear you calling us. Give us attentiveness to the sound of the alarm, to be ready because you are coming. May our lives be more and more performed by your word and your spirit both individually and collectively may we be a people god who walk with you may we be a people who go out from this place and bear witness to the world around us of who you are and of what you have done may we be a people who go out and call others to come to return to turn from their sin to find hope and peace and life in Christ and in Christ alone. God, fill us with your spirit. Send us out from here as your ambassadors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.